This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to talk about conspiracy theories and conspiracy entrepreneurs with two communication scholars, Aaron Heisen from Antwerp University's Social Science and Communications Department, where he is a PhD candidate, and Hilda Vandenbalk, a professor at Drexel University's Department of Communication. They recently published Conspiracies, Ideological Entrepreneurs, and Digital Popular Culture in Media and Communications. And we're talking about conspiracy theories and the conspiracy theory business coming up next. Our discussion was recorded on February 11th, 2022. Five or 10 years ago, conspiracy theories seemed more like a joke. We were laughing about tinfoil hats and Area 51 and things like that. I don't really know if it was because conspiracy theories were necessarily less dangerous, but probably more we just didn't understand how serious they could be and how much of a danger they could potentially present to society. Today, there's no doubt conspiracy theories are serious problems. It seems to have helped fomented an attempted coup d'etat against the country. Tens of thousands of people have been scared off of a vaccine and have died as a result. Some guy got so riled up, he shot up a pizza joint looking for a child prostitution ring run by Hillary Clinton. And now it's the National Butterfly Center. Apparently, it's suffering from the same fate. So conspiracy theories we now know are a problem. In this episode, I thought it would be great to dig into how they work and just get a sense of what's going on with two experts on conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. First, Adam Heisen is here. He's a doctoral student from Antwerp University's Social Science and Communications Department and the lead author on a terrific paper that we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And Hilda Vandenbolk, a professor at Drexel University's Department of Communication, a very well-published scholar on the topic and uh, co-author on this paper. Thank you very much for joining us, Hilda. Likewise, very happy to be here and thank you for having us. So wait, let, let's get started uh, with just some basic concepts. Like what's a conspiracy theory and what makes that different from just any old theory? I think that we decided to frame conspiracy theories as basically ideological. So it's a belief system, and I think related to that, it's a value system that allows people to make sense of the world. And so I think a lot of conspiracy theorists represent ideological skepticism. So if we get our basic definition, conspiracy theory implies conspirators, it implies a secret agendas, and there tends to be multiple layers to the agenda which makes it particularly confusing. And I think it's typically about money, power, and control. And then there's a implicit notion that these things are illegal or harmful. So there's innocuous conspiracy theories that no one talks about that much, like Santa Claus or Elvis or whatever the case may be. But since they don't have a political element, it doesn't seem to concern us as much. So I think it's interesting to remember that we all believe in conspiracy theories. I think just recently in the news, the Times reported that the U.S. intelligence agencies or military discovered a video fabricated by Russia to create conflict in the Ukrainian border and instigate the conflict. So whatever you may believe, either the U.S. is lying about the video or Russia did, in fact, fabricate a secret video, there is a conspiracy theory. 
And I think that's not exactly what we're talking about today, although we all believe in those things. We're talking about something a little more supernatural or metaphysical, perhaps not all the time. I, I like an example by a British philosopher named Kasim Kassam, who uses 9-11 to illustrate the point. And what he says is that there's three layers to this conspiracy. There's an official account, which is that Al-Qaeda attacked the U.S. on 9-11, targeting the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and other targets. And that's a conspiracy. Al-Qaeda as an organization plotted secretly in a small group of conspirators with direct ideological goals and then executed the terrorist attack. Then there's another layer, which is people immediately began to believe that it was an inside job, that George W. Bush had secretly instigated the attack or created the attack. It wasn't real. Building 7 was detonated from the inside and all of this other sprawling facts and ideas that were debated and are still debated. So that would be the second layer. And then there was another third layer, which we would also call a true conspiracy, which the Bush administration did conspire to tie Iraq to Al Qaeda. And so that's another real conspiracy, which Colin Powell famously went to the UN and gave a speech presenting all this evidence about weapons of mass destruction and, and supposed communications between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, which basically evaporated and Rumsfeld lost his job, Colin Powell resigned, all this stuff happened. Right. So there's that layer, that's a third layer. And then again, I would add the fourth layer, which is once in a while, it sprawls out into the more fantastic or science fiction where people on that third layer accused Rumsfeld and Cheney of being lizard people and right. uh, part of an Illuminati organization that was- It's a little more fantastic. Yeah. I think yeah, I can add sort of to that, but I think when I first started looking at conspiracy theories, it does look like a lot of really crazy things. Right? Why would anybody believe that, right? And also yeah. such a wide variety, right? The earth is flat. Leaders are lizard people. Terrible things that happen that will be inside jobs. And it also seems kind of random almost sometimes, so diverse. But then if you look back, I think what Aaron said underneath is sort of a story about what the world is like and which is about the existing institutions should not be trusted, be it the government, be it NASA, right, be it science. And I think that are, those are the big institutions from a sociological perspective, right? The big institutions in society are not to be trusted. Right. And that's, I think, central in all these things. And a lot of them are the false flag idea that this is pretends to be Al Qaeda, but maybe it's US government or these kind of things. Very often about the government and the big government institutions that should not be trusted. But it can also be maybe NASA. We don't really think of as that big an institution, but it is again, right? This is the official, what we've been told is official is maybe not so official. And I think that's sort of returning. And when you look at all these theories and go, oh, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> right? That seems to be returning. Yeah. And so I think at the end, some of the main criteria tends to be plausibility and evidence. So there's some things that are just completely implausible and incredibly unlikely. So we can't, you know, how do you ever prove that someone is not an alien. You can't exactly do it, but it's so implausible and there's no evidence that there's no good reason to believe it. And that tends to drive us in the direction of, again, Kasim Kassam, to illustrate the point, he would say there would be a capital C, capital T conspiracy theory and a lowercase conspiracy theory. And that implausible, supernatural, deeply skeptical would be the capital C, capital T conspiracy theory very little evidence, very little plausibility, and yet people continue to believe it. This is actually really good stuff. So I think I'm understanding. 
So what I'm understanding is one of the differences between just any old theory and a conspiracy theory is conspiracy theories are, it's a specific proposition that says the powers that be are lying to you in some way. Maybe it's that the earth is round. Maybe it's that 5G isn't programming, whatever. It's all variations on a core message, which is you should not trust the mainstream institutions of society. And that's its defining characteristic. And then I got that sometimes it's true, like officials do lie to you. And that's one of the problems is that yep. there are cases where you are going to be lied to. And then Absolutely. there are fantastical ones there where nobody's lying to you. Right. Yes. And I think some of it is also, for instance, it's governments sometimes lie to you, right? To, mm-hmm. to their own people or to other people across the globe. But also the idea that science is just another opinion. And I guess that real science, even if you look at the vaccines, there is a lot of uncertainty. So the exact nature of science is that it's evolving and that it's sort of incremental knowledge, right? But if you're already being told to doubt science, then when it turns out that maybe, and I think we've seen a lot of that during the vaccine, right, where there is incremental knowledge building because this came out of nowhere. So maybe what all the scientists or the majority of the scientists thought at the early stages, we have later learned through more data, more facts, more analysis, more research. But if you're already being repeatedly told that science is not to be trusted, then that is further proof. Whereas for people who are like everybody in this in this conversation, science, we appreciate it's not right or wrong. It's not black or white. It evolves. We learn more every day. And so we assume that, yes, we think about it maybe slightly different now about the vaccines or whatever than we did a year ago. But we don't doubt the fact that we for 200 or 100 years, I don't know, science has been developing cures for illnesses that take on the nature of a vaccine, right? But whereas if you're already being told to doubt science and medical science and other science, then the medical experts saying, well, different from what we said six months, we do think it's important to wear a mask, whatever, a further proof of what big liars they are. Yeah. I would also say it reminds me of, it's been a couple of years since I was in this conspiracy forum, but how difficult science is to understand for someone who is uninitiated. And there's a lot of conspiracy that centers around this, something Alex Jones talks about Satanists and that relates to the Illuminati and Bohemian Grove and the elite. But I remember reading some conspiracy theorists discuss Isaac Newton's work because there's a great conspiracy that the Royal Society of Science or something like that from the 17th century is behind much of the Illuminati. You know, I use, use that term loosely, but Newton himself was talking about how all his results felt like occult property. And he was also attacked as being an occultist and regressing the world and intellectual life back into alchemy because everyone was doubting the theories of gravitational motion. And conspiracy theorists latched onto those criticisms and thought it was real, said that this was actually Satanist, that Isaac Newton was a Satanist. It's just that's how difficult science is to think about. And so if you are less familiar with that topic, I think jumping in, you'll find it extremely confusing that our intuitive notions of the world don't really make sense and that we're not getting answers necessarily. We're just getting reliable data to act as a guidepost. You know what's thought-provoking about that, though, is when you hear that as a sociologist, you think, well, that kind of strikes me that means conspiracy theories have kind of a social function. They're almost like a, a cultural mechanism that prevents us from, as a culture, just unthinkingly 
obeying everything. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing in society or something that we can purge or might even want to purge the culture from. Like it serves a social function. To a certain extent, for sure, I think, yes, because there's nothing wrong with being critical towards whatever facts or things presented to you as facts are being thrown at you, right? So in in essence, it's good that as a society and as individuals that you remain critical of whatever information is provided. But there is, of course, this is all part of really questioning the most fundamental. There's nothing wrong with questioning government. There's nothing wrong with questioning science. But it is ultimately also brings us maybe to what is the goal of those people who help spread those. But but first, uh, before we get into your work specifically, because I know a lot of people are going to come to this topic dying to ask, why do people get enmeshed in these things? I know that you said there's a lot of prior work and that I'm sure every conference you present at, someone's like, how do you believe in this? How, how can somebody be brought to believe that Hillary Clinton is running a child prostitution ring in the basement of a pizza parlor? I know that's not exactly what you have focused on, but just because I know so many people care, yeah. what does the research say on that? Like, what brings us into conspiracy theory? I think if you look at the theory, some from a psychological perspective will say that it's like a dysfunction almost, right? That it's, but I think that doesn't entirely explain maybe how many people are engaged with conspiracies, because this is a pathology would mean that it's the exception, right? From yeah. the straight. I don't think pathology at this point can really explain how many people are engaged so actively with, I think, social science. Sociology has maybe better explanations, and I would say that as a social scientist, of course. But it gives people something to help them understand their own world a little better, because maybe their world doesn't make sense in that maybe their expectations of life have not been fulfilled in the way that they hope. Maybe they feel that they're always on the short end of what is happening, that they have missed out on so much. Maybe they see the world changing which is maybe no longer their sort of comfortable world, maybe as a white part of this country, right? Your world has become less comfortable as in a Durkheimian sense, your, the existing norms have been removed and people are trying to find ways to understand that and to find their own position in there. And I think to some extent, maybe these conspiracies explain the world more favorably to them than the other ones is. And I've struggled a long time to understand why you think your life would be better if you think that the earth is flat, right? What does that add to your life? It adds to your life to think that it's maybe in other ways, right? Again, don't trust the institutions, et cetera, et cetera. It might help people explain why they are maybe not in the spot that they would like to be. Having said that, it's only not only that. I think the other thing that I as a communication scholar would add, particularly if you look at the current things, it's something you can engage with, right? It's, if you look at the QAnon things, it's almost like Pokemon, right? Search, go and look for <laughs> you can build the truth and you can do it. Right. It's, I know that people who study immersive games might not like me saying it, but it does have some characteristics almost. And so people are now Googling it and feeling like they're suddenly understand it better the way they never understood these big theories of how the world works, etc. Here's something that they are discovering. And I think that too might play a bit of a role in there. That's interesting. Last spring, I interviewed an expert on religious cults. And he said to me, I was like, how could somebody be brought to kill themselves or give away everything they own? And he said, a lot of people are involved in cults because it's the basis of social relations that they care about. And they don't even care about the ideational content of the cult so much as they care about defending their friends, maintaining the stories that you need to maintain to have group cohesion. 
He says there are groups of vegetarians who talk about how the conditions under which they'll cheat, which means none of them are vegetarians, right? <laughs> but they have to still label themselves as it because that's an axis that has brought them together. Yes. Maybe that's kind of it. I think, again, if you sort of look at maybe something like Flat Earth, and I think social media come into that as well. They can build a community almost around that, and they find each other. And I usually joke, I don't think it's because of social media. I think social media just facilitated maybe, or digital media. Digital media didn't invent conspiracy theories or community building. They are new ways of doing it, right? If in the old days, that was one conspiracist in every town, now they have more digital ways of meeting each other and feeling connected also, right? So it is finding a community of people which you might not find in your regular life for some reason. Mm-hmm. I would also say just for us to understand it, that there's also, you mentioned vegetarians or vegans, there's also astrologists and psychics. Some people might add religion to that group more broadly of people with very strong, perhaps ideological viewpoints that conflict with science, perhaps, perhaps they don't, but those things are familiar to us. So it's easy to wrap our heads around them. But when you start thinking another way, like maybe it's flat earth, there is kind of a weird logic to it. And I I think maybe for some of the conspiracy theorists, they don't, they can just move across that gap easier than, than most, I suppose. And then once they're on the other side, for all the reasons Hilda just gave, it's easy to question everything. It's easy to pursue things. There's a whole corpus to read about and to build yeah. a community about uh, and engage with. It's also like, sometimes I wonder if you just wave off the insanity. I mean, think of like, if you're part of a church or a synagogue or something, and you all assemble to pray to an invisible person who controls all of reality, you know, that's pretty fantastical too. But you might yeah. be like, listen, that there on this stuff, but I like going there to see my friends and get out of the house. Absolutely. And so that's the type of thing where I think, again, it just to remind ourselves, it doesn't bother us. The astrologists have not joined together into a political movement that is challenging governments or medical institutions. I mean, in some ways they do. I mean, again, there's a lot of anti-vax is across the entire political and ideological spectrum, a naturalist, perhaps hippie wing, whatever you might want to call it. That is extremely anti-vax and might advocate crystals or some other type of healing (laughs) that we don't talk about quite as much. And then the religious groups do obviously form serious political movements that affect us and all that stuff. But in some ways, this tends to be about when the flat earthers or the QAnons enter the the polis and start engaging and have a voice or a a voting block. You know, what do we do? Right. Let's get to that because it, 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 that's the important part. So your paper isn't asking why do people individually attach, but you're asking how is this getting mainstreamed? Like how are we getting to the point where we have huge portions of society just refusing vaccines or being you know okay with January 6th? So what's going on? How is this becoming mainstream and powerful? And well, I think as we try to explain in the paper, right, that's one of the things that we focus on is these particular ideological entrepreneurs, as we call them, conspiracist entrepreneurs who really try to push the agenda out of partly personal convictions, partly sort of political connections, and it can vary a little bit, right? But that's repeat this message so that it catches on wider and wider. And that sort of brings it 
more into the mainstream, right? I think even if you look at sort of data like Pew or other data, there was always this idea that in the US, conspiracy theories would catch on a bit more than in certain parts of Europe, for instance, right? Which can be all kinds of factors that contribute to that. But I'm not so sure at this point, actually, if you look at Europe, to what extent that that is still the case, because it has gone... But they were very much on the margin. The reason that they have gotten more to the core is because there are central people who, for reasons of power, or help to push that message, right? And so I think important, those entrepreneurs, some of them also make it their financial business, like Alex Jones for a very long time made a lot of money out of also out of it. But the entrepreneurship is they really are selling ideologies in a sense, right? And behind, if you look, for instance, at the Alex Jones kind of weird array of conspiracies, that goes back again to a, a fundamental distrust in government institutions, right? From the lizards over the 9-11, he was also big on that bug when we were turning into the new millennium, right? I think that was one of his first very big on. It always goes back to that thing. And I think... They have really helped, they, those kinds of entrepreneurs help to push that to the mainstream. And as they push along, then get connected with more real political powers, maybe. And I think maybe Aaron can explain this better, but right at some point, like, someone like Alex Jones was maybe not particularly party political, right? He would attack, 9-11 would be an attack on sort of Republican presidential, and then others afterwards, he went after Obama. So you might say that he's not really party political. He just hate everything that is institutional power. But then as it moved along, and then sometimes it's maybe also perfect storm, right? Where then Trump, in when he was running for president, found a connection with him. And, then it, and I think that's really how things get to the mainstream. It goes in leaps and bounds a little bit, right? So it's, it's a lot of repeatedly the message until you move a little bit less from the margins, and then it gets picked up and starts almost to lead a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I also say that I think it. I think there's an interesting flexibility to those types of narratives. Where if you take Trump and QAnon and the deep state, Americans have certainly been primed to distrust the government generally for generations. A lot of typical Fox News content is questioning the government and the bureaucracy around it, and so whether Trump operatives just sort of jumped onto this QAnon thing and said, well, here's a voting block, we can work with this. Or if Trump even sees himself that way, not in the conspiratorial sense, but just in the sense of he's a businessman, he wants interest to get out of the way to free up, he can create his own narrative about that. He might very well see himself fighting the deep state if that means, I don't know, the Democrats or bureaucracy, et cetera. So I, I think it tends to have the flexible nature that anyone can latch onto in a certain way. And then there's a, a Venn diagram of perhaps weirder and weirder, or maybe less plausible theories to more plausible theories or how you decide to frame it. So from what I'm gathering, there is a certain type of cultural producer, a content creator genre, mm -hmm. and these particular content creators, they peddle conspiracy theories. Like that's the product. That's the That's symbolic the product. product that they're doing. And what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that there's been like an explosion of this population of people producing. It's almost like in an ideas market, there's been a huge influx of supply. Yes. But rather than dealing with money and real products, we're dealing with idea creators in the ideational marketplace. Is that what I'm... I think that's correct. And I think it's, it's implicit in that is that there's a void of 
a basic world viewpoint. People are very open-minded, and that's maybe another characteristic, it seems, of conspiracy theorists, to be particularly open-minded. Any one of these narratives that ideological entrepreneur, as we call it, is sort of inventing. That's their product. That's their invention. And as they create them, people are happy to adopt them. People are happy to let them go. I think maybe similarly to the cults, when some cult is supposed to leave Earth and it doesn't happen and they just move the date further into the future and people go along with it, there's, there's also that type of flexibility where conspiracy theorists are confronted with a lot of false conspiracy theorists and they just can account for it with another conspiracy. So it also tends to just perpetuate itself. There's old can- research, old research from a social psychologist who the day of the reckoning is coming as these cults have, right? And the day comes and passes and the reckoning hasn't joined, right? That it actually strengthens. You'd think that, you know, you we might think that, well, okay, that's it. They're going to lose half of their following after that. No, it kind of strengthens because that's where it all, I think also that group identity sets in that against odds, you have to reconfirm each other because otherwise your world might fall apart too much, right? I'm again, maybe sort of Durkheimian, but otherwise your world will fall apart even more. So you get reconnected and you will, because you will also get outside criticism that you have something to fight against. That's another thing, of course, when they, Mm. and so I think that's, yeah, as Aaron says, it doesn't necessarily mean then that, and you can see that a little bit. For instance, if you look at the QAnon, it has that it didn't happen overnight. And other entrepreneurs like Jones came before that, right? So by the time the QAnon came, everybody had moved already up to a point where that might catch the attention of more people than it might have 10 years ago, right? Regardless of also the role of social media, maybe, but they throw very minimal hints out there, right? They don't, it's not that there's a big story that QAnon presents to everybody and asks, believe in this, right? They throw out little bits that suggest and yeah. fit in a broad idea that like you can't trust whatever they tell you. You can't trust the institutions. And then the people pick up on that. And then they get disappointment. They go to a rally thinking that the son of JFK is going to be there rather yeah. than, I can't remember what politician it was that was going to be there. You go like, why do you think? And then they go back. Okay, that didn't happen, but there will be something else. And it can peter out again. But I think a lot in society will first have to, we will have to reckon with a lot of things before it can completely be disappearing again. Is it kind of like this idea of conspiracy entrepreneurs and thinking of it as basically selling a service or cultural product is really quite powerful. It almost sounds like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, they have universe building and fan fiction and everybody, you know, wants to put their own theory on what's happening in the episodes. Does it function like that kind of? I guess there's many things, but I do think that as a, as a sort of an academic, I think that we can learn from fan studies almost, right, oh. to help and understand it. But it also means, I think that's another aspect, I think our research suggests, right, that these entrepreneurs are selling ideas and ideologies rather than sometimes they also sell products. First and foremost, they're selling ideas and ideologies, but just like the Marvel Universe, there is, of course, a big financial industry behind right. it. Right? So there are big vested interests out there that, and now I sound like a conspiracist maybe, but it is a fact that if you're trying to sell an idea, there will, in a capitalist society or in just any big society, there will be other interests behind it. There's a reason why you push certain ideas, of course. It's also like conspiracy theory itself is a label that you would have fixed, viewed it positively, you'd see it as investigative journalism, Mm -hmm. right? It's like kind of like a complex concept. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
So what's in their toolkit? Like, how do they do it? If I want to start a conspiracy theory, if I want to replicate Alex Jones's business model, like, what do you do? How do you do it? What's their MO? I think there's two parts to it. I think it's the way you tell your story. And I think Aaron can maybe say a bit more about that. And then there's the media that you can employ, right? And I think... I don't know, Aaron, if you want to start on that, about how you package your story, right? Yeah, I think, number one, that some people are obviously more primed to distrust, let's say, the government or large corporations. So I felt like when I was researching it, a lot of conspiracy theorist podcasts or interviews would always start with, you know, does XYZ lie about something? And does the Catholic Church lie about et cetera, et cetera, the U.S. government or NASA? And so people are set up to be skeptical. And then there's an important part, which is that people like Alex Jones are extremely entertaining. So they are incredibly charismatic, which is what I suppose they would say about most cult leaders. When you're like, how can you possibly follow this this person around and all the crazy ideas that they have? Well, it's incredibly entertaining. And I think if you look at how he does it, I think there is definitely a way of starting with the true conspiracies and then moving into things that are much more radical. So we can start with something we all agree. QAnon clearly has a basic political movement behind it. And then some of the ideas make plenty of sense. They sound like the military industrial complex or something else. And then they move into crazier things. So navigating that way of weaving the truth into your ideological narrative, I think they're very, very clever about. And besides that, I think they also repeat their message in the face of criticism and refutation even. They just seem to bulldoze ahead relentlessly and all news is good news. So as I get more attention, it just seems to help and support their cause. Yeah, I think that's also something that Alex Jones said when I think he's an awesome example. And I think many of these entrepreneurs are very good at using the media that are available. And again, the media don't create this, but they know how to use them, right? So in the old days, it would be posters or it would be movies or it would be today it's being on social media. And like he talks for hours on his shows and then he, you know, he knows how to cut it up into small bits that fit sort of formats like YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. He encourages things that are memeable, right? And then in that sense, it's fine if there's meme that make fun of him. Like he, and he's in that sense very knowledgeable. I think he said somewhere, I don't, I'm the number one meme <laughs> at the moment. And he, it doesn't matter that it is to, to make fun of him. He feels it still gets attention. Yeah. And maybe some of the people that start making fun then suddenly get like, who is this guy? What is he yeah. talking about? And so by getting even through that, people who make fun of him or criticize him through a sort of meme culture, also kind of contribute to push it to the mainstream. I I, I should also add that even more basic than that, that I haven't mentioned is that there is a role of intellectuals and experts in conspiracy theory. I mean, there's a number of university professors who espouse that 9-11 was an inside job, that engineers who have said, who have claimed that there's no way the buildings could fall this way. Alex, one of Alex Jones's most popular memes was that chemicals in the water were turning the frogs gay. Yeah. And that came from a university professor in the in part of the California university system. I can't remember if it was UCLA, which one it was, but it was one of the state universities of California. You know, this is a, a scientist and a doctor who says, these are my findings. And so they also have a network like Flat Earthers of having expert opinion, having their own conferences where they 
say, we can't trust this institution, so we'll sort of make our own. And I think there's another big group centered around Area 51 and whether there's aliens or not. There's a whole group of engineers and they will give testimony that this technology is far beyond our reach. The only way we could have gotten it is if we reverse engineered some alien spacecraft. So they do look to expert opinion as well. So they, they avoid perhaps our sources and our trusted institutions, but they create their own. And I think Alex Jones and many other conspiracy theorists, I guess this would be more on the science fiction side of the wing, do create their own epistemology, so to speak. And they also, I think they also comfortably sort of pick and mix, right? I mean, they will find those even scientific proof and then it becomes part of this whole interest, weird narrative that is you know, comfortably disregarding all kinds of other scientific insights or whatever, right? So they're really building that story. That's interesting. Yeah, first of all, I think anybody who makes their way into a senior professorship will figure out how easy it is to find a, you know, a dejected faculty member who's more than happy to <laughs> trade in their credentials for something that does 50 grand. The interesting thing is, though, I have looked at Alex Jones's operation in my own research in content creation entrepreneurship. And it looks like any run-of-the-mill creator, like the headlines are for clicks, any funnels audiences to a merchandising operation and donation. So will you talk about this in your paper? You Web 2.0 technology has really made it cheap and easy to start up these operations. And you think that's part of it, right? You think that yes. part of the rising conspiracy theory is an internet type of thing. Can you explain how that works? Well, I do think to some extent, yes, right? You Almost anybody can start, you used to maybe be on a local radio, not like him, he started and then got bigger and bigger, but there could be others who really just start from, you know, any influencer starts from their bedroom or whatever and uses technology. Some are more inherently smart in how to use that. Other might have, you know, taken a degree in how to use social media, but they have their message and then you manage to go viral. And if you understand that concept of some maybe go viral by accident and they grow bigger than they would have ever expected, maybe, and then are smart enough to be entrepreneurial about it. Right. So it it certainly works maybe more easily than in the past. And again, it's not a technological determinist stance. Right. It's not that technology creates these things. But yes, we live in the old idea where there's only because those mainstream media, too, are considered as not to be trusted big institutions. Right. And we have one of the big things is that mass media, one too many, has been replaced by many too many. Right. And so that means that of all those many, every one millionth of them is an ideological entrepreneur and a and a conspiracy pusher, they can have an opportunity to be there more than they could have been in the sort of traditional mass media context. Well, I was going to say, I think that there's also, just like you said, that when Alex Jones uses very traditional methods to drive you towards, say, a product, and I, I do think there's drive home the point about an ideological context, a lot of his products just happen to be vitamins and iodine and, right. you know, so you look at the label and it says, well, this will protect you from becoming gay or right. against the radio waves. Don't trust and, your doctor. Yeah. But you do take this supplement and maybe you do feel better. Maybe it's placebo. Who knows? Maybe they're real vitamins. But you're, these things are working for you. And it's sort of all making sense. And those then sort of tab into, I think, something like preppers, which is another phenomenon at the margin, maybe, of what happens, but becomes part of that, too. So I think it's also understanding what potential audiences are out there 
or maybe just find them along the way in some cases that then become part of your big ideological family, right? So I think some of those things, as, as I think Aaron said previously, right, the it's not as if that's all one big block of one big ideology. It's very different groups that maybe have been on the margins for different reasons and then sort of get connected and gets, and that's the job and the art of the ideological entrepreneur to bring them within the fold of that bigger ideological theory in a way, right? First of all, this is totally whiz past us. Like, I want to give Oscar a chance. He was really excited to be part of the thing. He loves the topic. Oscar, did you want to ask a question or are you cool? Oh, uh, I just wanted to ask, obviously we have people like entrepreneurs that are trying to push an ulterior motive to kind of get like products sold. But what I was interested in asking is what about the impact of joke conspiracy theories that somehow gain traction? Because recently there was the birds aren't real conspiracy theory, which was done to make fun of conspiracy theories saying uh, Ronald Reagan killed all of them and now they're all drones spying on us. And I was wondering what your comments is on that. <laughs> I think it's a difficult thing to, to wrap your head around. I read one version where it was Nixon as part of the EPA had destroyed all the birds in order to have surveillance drones. And so obviously this was made to ridicule conspiracy theorists, but I think some people actually bought into it because there is a real conspiracy to survey American citizens and global citizens through NSA that's been reported on extensively. But I think that goes back to what I was saying before about the way conspiracies, you can never get behind someone and perhaps their paranoia, that you can always inject another conspiracy theory behind it. And I do think that there's a lot of humor where people, I think there was th these hand gestures that uh, Illuminati supposedly would give, but conspiracy theorists would say that they're laughing at us in plain sight. You know, So if Kanye West does this move or some politician or some other celebrities, this was all part of an idea that these elites have a sense of humor I think even the birds not being real can be absorbed by this ideological viewpoint and brushed off or even pushed forward. They've even adopted conspiracy theorists who don't know that it would, it's a joke on them. Yeah. Is it because it's it's rooted in a sentiment? It's rooted in a, a distrust? So you can always just adjust why you distrust if you have that distrust? Yeah, I think so too, right? But at the very heart of it is you're dissatisfied and you distrust. And those two feed into each other and then it can take... Well, Oscar says like there was a, a fake conspiracy meant to make fun of conspiracies. In the head of conspiracies, it, it might then be just more proof <laughs> almost of, right? Although I, I know that when I first got in, sort of first was made aware of the Alex Jones thing, the first things I thought, I really thought that it was someone, because I've come from Europe and I've only been here three years, I genuinely thought that this was just someone making fun of stuff, right? I didn't realize that, and, and I thought, this is hugely funny. And I think I would see, yeah, like the, the big burger who makes fun of him. It, to me, in, in the beginning, it was hard to see what is the extra layer of the person criticizing Jones and what is actually Jones? And does he mean this? And then when you start reading and then you read about this whole, like Sandy Hook, the, those horrible things that he would say, then you kind of realize this is a, so yes. Yeah, so at first level, and then, the, so if someone introduces to me something like birds, of course, I'm just going to think that's just really hilarious. But if there's people who think that he's right about lizards, then those birds are not such a weird thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Before you know it, your joke yeah. has become part of the actual conspiracy thinking. 
Thing How, gets of people believing in flying spaghetti monsters. Exactly. Yeah. So the Oscar's question though reminds me of an article that came out a few months ago about how people will willingly share information that they know to be false so long as they believe it advances the agenda of their political party or whatever. I wish I had, I remember, do either of you remember that paper coming out? I don't remember it. It was like, it just came out. But that, that's all the, the whole notion, right? Of sort of dis and malinformation that is set out with a political goal, right? But it's I mean, but the interesting thing is that the conspiracy theorists might not believe in this conspiracy. It's more like a group activity where they're reproducing a dialogue as a form of team sports, like to get Joe Biden yeah. or to get Donald Trump or whatever. But I totally agree. And I noticed again on forums and on conspiracy theorist podcasts, how accepting they were of other people's conspiracy interests. And they would just say, oh, I'm not into that. I'm not into flat earth. I'm more of right. a Illuminati world domination type of guy. And, yeah. and then they would just move forward and they like, wouldn't really. Like not I disagree it. with, not I think yeah. it's wrong. I'm not into that. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not, not into, into that. ice cream. But I like that you're into it and I'm willing to, we're all on the same team. I and then the second thing that I got from Oscar's question, I remember reading that people who are close to doctors, like nurse practitioners and nurses are often reluctant to get the vaccine. And I always wondered, is that an offshoot of their lack of trust in doctors? Like they work with them closely. They're like, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't thought about that, but that's an interesting I, I would. I got one more question for you before we go. Seven. What do you think of this whole Joe Rogan debate? Have you been following that? And uh, what were your reactions to that story? Are you sort of like, who knows? It's. I think he's, from an academic perspective, what is interesting is, is that his podcast is huge. He has a huge following, right? There's very little sort of academic attention until now, maybe, to him. Because I think he's probably very hard to pinpoint or he doesn't kind of fit typical categories of what we study, right? Because it's a podcast, is it a journalist? No. And so there's many things that I think academics find not easy to put in and kind of worried about where to put him. I think it's sort of, from what I've been following so far, it's interesting that it's, you know, that some of what gets said in these podcasts is, is problematic, right? For sure. It's also interesting that it's, to some extent, it's the next episode of a cancel culture, but there's, it's also interesting in that regard that that doesn't seem to go as smooth as some other cancel culture, right? So you find people, unexpected people then coming out in defense of Joe Rogan. It's mostly fascinating. And I think we talked about it. It would be lovely to look yeah. at it uh, more in depth because it's a very interesting case, I think, of, of, of sort of what is going on about opinion makers today what is an opinion maker today right it's there was a tweet probably even by can't remember who said well is this also an invitation for mainstream media to look at how they go about doing their journalism if this is such a big importance hmm. so i think it touches on many things that go beyond this one person and that sort of misinformation that is provided there hmm. there's a lot of layers of issues i suppose i think there's the pure issue about misinformation and what is an expert and then it's been interesting to see how that sprawled into many issues that seem to have no relationship to the vaccine whatsoever so there's sort of a spitefulness of cnn because i think sanjay gupta had a poor interview on the podcast and there's been a lot of celebrities making the issue about other things 
However, I do find the main issue the most interesting, which is whether to take the vaccine or not. And I've seen less content specifically about, again, what is expert opinion? If you relate, you know, he interviewed two scientists who dispute the vaccine, I suppose. And that reminds me of these conspiracy theorists finding their own intellectuals, finding their own experts, uh, perhaps finding their own institutions. And also the idea of it can also remind you about issues like global warming, where there's huge consensus about it. And then there's a few fringe experts who go against it and say global warming is not happening. And I don't feel like it's been put in that context enough, I suppose. It's, it's always an issue of how much does this media personality, how much power do they have or not have? And I do think it relates to bigger institutional issues. You know, I also find if I can quickly add, because you can also see that once you look at what all is are talking about, it's certainly about Rogan. It's a little bit about those things, but it's also the position of Spotify. It's also the media industry question is there too. So is it happening to Spotify? They're no longer doing music now. Have they realized there's more money in podcasts? Yes, they have, right? <laughs> and is that awful? Spotify is a commercial business, right? You could say Spotify, strictly speaking, doesn't have to do anything they don't want if it doesn't make money. So it's those questions too. So I have a sense that that apart from the, the fact of getting misinformation in a podcast listened to by so many people, there's so many other layers and it seems to become an example for so many, or he's, you know, he's getting put at the middle of so many discussions about the media and about, yeah, it's... it's yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with that, about the, the way... Again, we have institutional trust in, say, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal that they fact check. And I think on a lot of social media, Facebook and other social media, they've always said that they are not content creators. So they push away what any individual might say and they're not responsible for it. And I think we're sort of up against that again. Again, deeper issues about sourcing information, who is responsible, who is not responsible. I guess, freedom of speech, I suppose. But it seemed to have sprawled into this big, huge controversy and seems to have gotten away from just vaccines. And what do we do about them? And what do we do with people who don't want to get the vaccine? I think it kind of speaks to the media development angle that you guys theorize. Like Joe Rogan is doing numbers like he's Good Morning America. Mm -hmm. He speaks to like hundreds of millions of people every month. And my sense is, is that he's just become sort of like the good morning America for blue collar men ages 18 to 49. Mm -hmm. And I guess when you look at what he says, he says, well, that's what people are talking about uh, in my demographic. I mean, I, I'm from a blue collar town and they are talking about ivermectin. Like, they, yeah. I used to work in radio in the 1990s. And for me to get an audience of a thousand people, it was a multi-million dollar enterprise. There was a tower and engineers and salespeople and all sorts of stuff. Now anybody can run a radio station that hits 10,000 people with no budget. So a Nazi station can go fine. A conspiracy thing can go fine and they'll find their markets. And I, and I think also, but now maybe we're off topic. A little. Yeah. <laughs> Communication scholars, right? I think a long time ago, the US did away with something like the fairness doctrine, right? Where it was, I think it was under Reagan, probably he got rid of everything that was vaguely resembling any sort of regulation of content, I guess. And which meant that also in many of the sort of what still mainstream media, that sort of 
you know, happened all in mainstream media, right? Or at least in sort of the traditional media, which has brought us to a point where fairness doctrine or all those things seem less relevant. And then you come technologically create a situation where anybody can be their own channel. Well, then you get, of course, way different people go to different sources than they ever would have gone to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like he, he he's become a he's become sort of a lightning rod for this larger political issue. And I think as Hilda sort of pointed out that the legacy media seems upset that he's so popular and that he's displaced Good Morning America or some of these other classic outlets or channels for entertainment. It's interesting to me how he's sort of become the focal point of all anti-vaccination. While there is a Canadian protest, there's a great deal of anti-vax. And he's typically left-wing. He's not a right-winger. And he campaigned for Bernie Sanders. So it's an odd mix-up. And I think some of those issues are more interesting, how that would all come together in a way, again, in in the sense of, is he a talk show host or is he a journalist? And what is his responsibility? Very complex. Aaron Heisen from Antwerp University. Hilda Vandenbroek from Drexel University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. The Annex Sociology podcast is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our guests today were Aaron Heisen from Antwerp University and Hilda Vandenbult from Drexel University. They recently published Conspiracies, Ideological Entrepreneurs, and Digital Popular Culture in the journal Media and Communications. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianix, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Oscar Rosario. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.